When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We represent Islam in a sense that it has to be tolerant, liberal, plural, and accept even some of the um, values of the West. I'm Mehdi Hassan. Welcome to Deconstructed. It's a never-ending debate. Why do so many Muslims live in undemocratic countries? How do you get more freedom in the Middle East? Does Islam have a problem with democracy? They're age-old and often quite cliched questions. So on today's show, I want to do a bit of debunking and deconstructing with the help of a very special and a very relevant guest. You have corrupt, oppressive, tyrannical states, and they use the liberal Islam. That's my guest today, the renowned Malaysian leader and former political prisoner, Anwar Ibrahim, who's on course to become the country's next democratically elected prime minister. I'm also joined by Dalia Mugahid, the American Muslim writer, scholar and former White House advisor. When you look at the facts, they simply don't support the idea that there is a clash of civilizations or a clash of values. So on today's show, what's the deal with Islam, Muslims and democracy? Islam and democracy. Is there a clash? Is there a contradiction? I've been hearing this question posed by right and left alike my entire life, since before 9-11, but especially since after 9-11, when we were told by George W. Bush, by Tony Blair, by the neocons and others, that the real problem in the Muslim-majority world is the lack of democracy and freedom and political pluralism. And guess what's to blame for that? Islam, or at least political Islam, whatever that is. Now, I have a lot of problems with this rather lazy and simplistic narrative, which completely and conveniently overlooks the role played by Western governments in propping up Muslim dictators like the president of Egypt or the king of Saudi Arabia. But here's my biggest problem with that narrative. It's factually inaccurate. Right now, in 2019, hundreds of millions of Muslims, possibly the majority of the world's 1.7 billion Muslims, live in democracies of some shape or form, live in countries where they have the right to vote, the right to choose and to change their own governments. From Indonesia to Malaysia, to Pakistan, to Lebanon, to Tunisia, to Turkey, not to mention the tens of millions of Muslims who live in Western countries, in Germany, France, the UK, Canada, the United States. The mayor of London, last time I checked, was a Muslim. And in fact, the country which is on course to have the biggest Muslim population in the world in the next couple of decades is India, which also happens to be the world's biggest democracy. So why is it that in the West in particular, people still associate Islam with dictatorship and totalitarianism and a lack of freedom? Why is it so many folks still think Muslims have some sort of inherent objection to or problem with the idea of democracy, that we're not interested in or grown up enough or liberal enough for democracy? What's the actual reality? It's a big question. But it's a question I'm asking on Deconstructed today. And we're lucky enough to have two fascinating and very clever guests who I hope are going to enlighten us all. More than 20 years ago, 
Anwar Ibrahim was on the cover of Time magazine, which called him the star of a rising generation of Asian leaders. But the then Deputy Prime Minister of Malaysia and devout Muslim leader spent the next two decades in and out of prison on trumped-up charges. Malaysian reformist leader Anwar Ibrahim has been released from prison. The release comes after his opposition alliance won the elections earlier this month. Now, there's a new dawn for Malaysia. I must thank the people of Malaysia, regardless of race and religion, who stood by the principles of democracy and freedom. Today, this long-standing advocate for democracy, dialogue and human rights, who's become a bit of a rock star in the Muslim-majority world, is a step away from becoming prime minister of, yes, democratic Malaysia, having come out of prison and helped pull off the unlikeliest of election victories last year. Anwar Ibrahim joins me now to talk Islam and democracy. Anwar Ibrahim, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you. To many in the West, Anwar, many here in the US, there is a clash, a contradiction uh, even between Islam and democracy. But you come from a Muslim-majority country of more than 30 million people. That is a democracy, a flawed democracy, but which democracy isn't. Uh, so what do you make of this constant claim, both from right-wing Islamophobes, but also from well-meaning liberals who genuinely seem to think that Islam and democracy, Muslims and democracy, don't go together? I think to quote Edward Sine is a clash of ignorance. Uh, there's very little understanding of what's happening on the ground. Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world, it is uh, as democratic as the United States. Uh, Turkey, of course, uh, levied with some criticisms, but generally there was a, elections which has seen or perceived by the West even as independent. And now Malaysia, as you know, in the last year's elections and now proceeding towards a vibrant democracy. India although Muslims are the minority, but they support the democratic process. You have Christian Democrats in Europe. Hmm. Why can't we have Muslim Democrats in the Muslim world? The issue is the fundamentals of the democratic process cannot be compromised. Judicial independence, free media, equal rights for citizens. And that is being observed. Yeah, it's more than just having elections. A lot of countries have elections which turn out to be not so democratic. Precisely, even elections in an undemocratic society will always be flawed. So what's your explanation then for the preponderance of dictatorships across the Muslim-majority world, especially across the Middle East and the Arab world? Well, there are also internal dynamics within Muslim societies that must be addressed. But you can ask the similar questions of the Washington elite, the London elite, who actually has been, to a large extent, complicit in this uh, arrangement. Yeah. They support the dictators and authoritarian regimes. But I would not use that as a complete argument, yeah. because I think Muslim societies themselves need reform and need a further uh, commitment towards this. And it is happening in the Muslim world, in Indonesia, in Malaysia. It is not happening, unfortunately, in the, in the, in the Arab world. The problem is the Arab nations and not a Muslim problem. And unfortunately, as you yourself have noted, Arab nations are often conflated with all of the Islamic world, even though Arabs are a minority of the world's Muslims. And as you mentioned, Indonesia is the world's uh, largest uh, Muslim-majority country. You said in 2014 that, quote, all eminent Muslim Democrats must condemn not just groups like ISIS and Boko Haram, but the dictatorships and autocratic regimes in the Muslim world that have persistently denied democratic rights to their citizens and whose human rights records could even put North Korea to shame. And when I read that quote, Amor, I'm kind of torn because on the one hand, it's so refreshing to hear a Muslim leader willing to criticize Muslim-majority countries when a lot of Muslims, as you know, in our communities turn a blind eye to our own 
problems. And we're very happy to criticize Israel or America or the West. We don't want to say things about Muslim countries. So I'm glad that you're willing to say that. On the other hand, there is this view that it feeds into a dangerous narrative that says Muslims are all collectively responsible for bad things that happen in Muslim societies, that we have to constantly play this condemnation game. And some would say, you know, what do I have to do with Saudi Arabia? Why should I condemn them? Nothing to do with me. I'm not Saudi. I'm not to blame for Saudi Arabia. I'm not responsible. Well, that, that is a problem. I endured these uh, atrocities and uh, imprisonment for two decades. I don't expect much either from the West or the Muslim world. But the bare fact, uh, the reality is uh, capital, Western capitals, including the United States, were more at least committed, though uh, oftentimes ambivalent. But at least they have been seen to be more supportive. So they, this rhetorically, rhetorically, at least, which is not happening in the Muslim world. So I think that um, my my position is we must be morally coherent and consistent. If you condemn atrocities in, the, uh, for example, in some other countries in Latin America, Africa, you must be prepared to do the same. Yeah. You've noted that in the West we often equate the Arab countries, as I said, with Islam. Uh, you'd like to talk about Indonesia. Malaysia, Muslim democracies, which are culturally, politically distinct. Yet Malaysia does have an official religion. The constitution states that Islam is the religion of the federation, but other religions may be practiced in peace and harmony in any part of the federation. Is it your view that you don't need to be secular in order to be democratic, that you can be an Islamic or Muslim democracy? Well, the constitution stipulates Islam, the religion of the federation, is not an Islamic state. There, um, this stipulates in judicial independence, free media, which need not necessarily be tied to the religious precepts. That must be clear. Secondly, I think um, the issue of secular or Islamic, it, it depends on how you, 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 you conceptualize. Mm. If it is laicite in the extreme sense of anti or... The French, anti, the the French, French secular model. Secular yeah. model. Uh, but I think to my mind, what is essential is every citizen must be given equal right. So Muslims don't have preference over non-Muslims in a yes, society or extra rights? because we have a, a substantial number of Christians, Hindus, Buddhists in this country. You mentioned the very thorny, contentious idea of Islamic State, which of course ISIS have given a whole new meaning to. But generally, there are people in the Muslim-majority world who have peacefully, non-violently want to work towards a quote-unquote Islamic state. What do you understand to mean by Islamic state? Does it does such an idea even does can such a state even exist? I would say that uh, Muslims uh, would need to suggest that they need an independent state that allows for freedom of expression and worship. And um, you want to call it Islamic or secular, it does not matter. I would go for the content. Yeah. Now, if it is an in interpretation of Islamic State as promoted by Boko Haram, certainly I totally reject. And I think it's nonsensical. Or even it cannot be Iran, defended. Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, they all call themselves Islamic republics or Islamic kingdoms in some it shape or form. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, Pakistan... But in practice, they Pakistan, do some pretty un-Islamic yes, and horrible clearly, things. Clearly, it's a gross contradiction. You have oppressive state... You have undem not only exactly. undemocratic, corrupt, oppressive, tyrannical states, and they use the label Islam. Mm, it's a problem. Uh, as someone who's been tried and convicted twice uh, for sodomy, these trumped-up charges that you're accused of, a sentence in Malaysia that can lead up to 20 years in prison, it can lead to whipping under Malaysian law. You told the Wall Street Journal back in 2012, many years ago, that Malaysia's sodomy laws are, quote, archaic, 
that they should be amended. You said, quote, it's not my business to attack people or arrest people based on their sexual orientation. Now you're a free man. Uh, now that your party is in power, you're on the verge of, you know, some would say soon becoming prime minister, and we can talk about that. Do you still stand by that? Will Malaysia be repealing its sodomy laws anytime soon? Yes. It is a kind introduced by the British in 1947 to India. And we replicate these laws. It's a colonial hangover. They're colonial and it has nothing to do with Islam or Christianity. So I, I, I believe, uh, well, I've said it's archaic. It has to be revised, amended. You cannot condemn people for their sexual orientation. Although, as a, as a country, not only Muslims, Christians, Hindus, we reject the notion of people displaying open sexual acts in public, and which is consistent to many countries in the West. Your sexual orientation is your business. No, but just to push back a little bit there, in the West, of course, there is something such as there, there are gay pride marches, for example. Even in Turkey, you mentioned, until very recently, there were gay pride marches in Turkey, a Muslim-majority country. Is that something you can see happening in Malaysia? Or are you saying, we won't punish you, but you've got to keep it behind closed doors? No public affirmation of being gay. Yeah, because I think the, the general moral standards is uh, concerned not only Muslims, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists. We are rather conservative in that light, liberal uh, in terms of political orientation, but I think uh, rather conservative in, in, in wanting the, uh, this display of uh, public display of sexual acts in public. And Whether I think, heterosexual or homosexual. Yes, or yes. So, so it is not a, a prejudice against any sexual orientation. But I think it will take time. It will evolve. If you've been... Uh, I mean, even your stance of coming out against punishments is controversial in Malaysia. There's Islam, yes, there's quote-unquote Islamic parties that want to keep those yes, archaic punishments. Yes, and I had to endure that for, for years because they kept condemning me. Look, this guy is supportive of all these um, acts uh, against religion, for example. Do I you, uh, do not agree, but I, I stand on my ground. And I think I have solid arguments to support our contention. Would you describe yourself and this is loaded language, I know, as a liberal Muslim or a conservative Muslim? What do you think of those labels? A Muslim must be liberal in the sense that they tolerate and try and understand the other. Mm. So uh, conservative in the sense that um, you do accept the fundamentals of religion. I mean, you pray. Um, I mean, so, so it depends on your connotation. But I think... Uh, the important point here is, do you tolerate differences? Yes. Do you allow people to criticize or condemn some of your beliefs? Yes. You need a reassertion of pluralism. We, clearly. It, it's a multiracial country. It is plural. I mean, and Islam itself uh, promotes that or uh, accepts that as a reality. In is theory, it, or in, but not, not, not with Muslims exactly. in practice. The contradiction, in is, contradiction is because the flaw of... of uh, Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Uh, the neoconservatism, not only in the West but also in Islam, the <laughs> neoconservatism in yes. Islam. It's a good. It's a good line. Um, You've said in the past that, quote unquote, Sharia law, which is a real bogeyman of a phrase here in the West, has been misunderstood. It's been conflated in the eyes of both many Muslims and non-Muslims uh, with, quote, hudud punishments, the stonings, the beatings, the lashings, the amputations, the really brutal and violent stuff uh, that we see on our screens on the news almost nightly. Uh, you said you're more interested in the maqasid of the law, the higher aims of the Sharia. Explain to our listeners who are not familiar with the concept, what do you mean when you talk about Sharia law and the higher aims of the Sharia? The relevance of religion. Islam or Christianity or Judaism is justice and compassion. You, you ignore this and then talk about punishment. Certainly the entire approach is wrong. So to my mind, religion requires understanding, compassion. So, uh, and, and legal precepts should be at the tail end. Even then, there must be a clear, legitimate interpretation. Most of the interpretations are by the neocons of the Islamic world. <laughs> How do you push back against them? We will have to continue to be vigilant, to be active. Uh, those uh, of us who believe in justice must be more assertive and, and the courage, although condemned by many of the neocons. And you talk about the neocons in the Muslim world. Some of the neocons in the Western world are very keen to pathologize Islam, to treat Islam as this kind of oddity in the modern world. And Muslims who don't sign up for liberal secular values overnight or yesterday are somehow backward, primitive, barbaric, you know, need to get on the modernity train. How, how do you push back against that line of thinking? <laughs> I consider this a paradoxical situation because the neocons of the West should be friendly to the neocons of the Muslim world. Yeah. They are blinkered in their views, non-tolerant and, and completely unjust to the other. We represent Islam in a sense that it has to be tolerant, liberal, plural, and accept even some of the um, values of the West. Samuel Huntington of the Clash of Civilizations fame once declared that Islam has bloody borders. And here in the West, a lot of people, again, both conservatives and liberals, will look at the violence and insurgency and terrorism plaguing countries like Iraq, Syria, Pakistan, even Indonesia, and they will say, yeah, that's undeniable. Islam has bloody borders. What do you say to them in response? Selective amnesia, when you talk about all the atrocities, the major atrocities uh, in the world, yeah. uh, by ideologues, the wars in Europe, the murders and death in China, and nothing to do with religion. Mm. I will not condone excesses, whether in the name of Islam or religion or secularism. But I think to uh, street history in a such a blinkered view is certainly not acceptable. That is why I started by suggesting um, this notion used by, or the phrase used by uh, Said as a clash of ignorance. Clash of ignorance over clash of civilizations. Um, when do you plan to replace Mahathir as prime minister? That's the plan, right? You're going to be prime minister of Malaysia. That's the plan. Well, the agreement was, uh, um, um, the word agreement that he will surrender power. He has come up repeatedly it will not be more than two years, so in less than a year to go. I think we should be patient, and I should use my time in this transition to prepare, to listen, and to interact 
uh, with um, Malaysians and also my friends overseas. And you have been very patient. You were in prison. Now, you, then you're in the opposition. Now your party's in power and you're waiting to take over. Let me ask you this final question. I really, you know, it's something that's quite interesting about you. You've said on the record that you forgive Mahathir for putting you in prison. You forgive Najib Razak, the, the former prime minister, uh, who you defeated last year for helping putting you in prison. How does someone like yourself, who spends, I think, more than 10 years behind bars, away from your family in pretty horrific conditions, how do you find it within yourself to forgive these men who have treated you in this way? I think uh, in my discussions with Mandela, uh, we joked about we being a bit either mad or crazy. But since we have been certified as not being mad, we are certainly crazy and doing what we have to do. Uh, and the sufferings endured by Aziza, my wife, and the family and friends. Uh, but um, on hindsight, what do we do? I mean, uh, do uh, is our personal interest more uh, important than the welfare of our citizens? We talk about uh, religion, humanity, compassion, and forgiveness. Why is it when it comes to our turn, we can't uh, act uh, or, or implement these ideals? So I think uh, finally it's not a choice. It's uh, an imperative that we have to act upon. Anwar Ibrahim, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. Thanks, Mehdi. That was Anwar Ibrahim, who is amazingly now on course to become Malaysia's next Prime Minister. What a journey he's been on. I'm joined now by Dalia Mugahed from the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, ISPU. She's a former executive director of the Gallup Center for Muslim Studies. She served on President Obama's White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, the first woman in a headscarf to ever do so, and is the co-author with Professor John Esposito of the acclaimed book, Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. Dalia, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Mehdi. Dalia, just listening to that interview with Anwar Ibrahim, what do you make of his answer that this endless debate over Islam and democracy is the product not of a clash of civilizations, but in the words of the late great Edward Said, a clash of ignorance? I'd really have to agree with Anwar on that. Um, when you look at the facts, they simply don't support the idea that there is a clash of civilizations or a clash of values. I worked on the largest, most comprehensive study of global Muslim opinion when I was with Gallup at, as the executive director of Muslim Studies. We interviewed tens of thousands of people from all over the world wow. and asked them questions about their views of, of their own society, of the West, uh, their own aspirations politically and personally. And when you do that, when you allow Muslims to speak for themselves, you get a very different picture than, than what the pundits would have us think. Surprise. <laughs> right, surprise. It's always interesting to me that vocal extremists from the Muslim side say exactly what Islamophobes say. They, they seem to have perfect agreement, but is very different from what the vast majority of Muslims think. When Gallup asked citizens of Muslim-majority countries from around the world, what they admired most about the West. One of the most frequent responses to that open-ended question was democracy. But, but Dalit, George W. Bush told us that they hate our freedom. Right. They don't hate our freedom. They want our freedom. They want the same thing for themselves. Here's a question for you. You hear people like Sam Harris and Bill Maher and others 
talking about, oh, Muslims in the Middle East in particular, but across the world, they want Sharia law. They want Islamic State. They don't want what we want. There's a difference between us and them. What do you say in response to that? Well, I think there's a lot to say in response to that. First of all, I'm wondering what they mean by we, Hmm. because a lot of people in our country definitely want their religious values reflected in our law, and I'm not talking about Muslims. (laughs) So in our research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, uh, as well as in Gallup's research, we found that lots and lots of Americans say that they want the Bible to be reflected in in law. And that's, you don't need a poll to tell you that. Just look at our politics. So the idea that religious people want to see their values reflected in their law is not exclusive to Muslims. Now, it's also interesting to see what Muslims around the world mean when they say Sharia. So one of the questions we asked in the polling we we did um, when I was with Gallup was a series of questions about what they associate with Sharia compliance. So when they say Sharia, what do they mean? Sharia compliance to them meant things like the rule of law, that government had to abide by the same law as the people. Women associated Sharia compliance with gender justice. Now, that's how they're interpreting Sharia. And it's interesting, I know Anwar was explaining the differences between, you know, the way Sharia is is, um, interpreted by Muslim neocons as well as Islamophobes, and the way he thinks about Sharia law as, as a set of principles. And that's a widespread view, according to your research. It's a very widespread view, according to the research we did, yeah. Dahlia, you're not just a Muslim American, you're an Egyptian American. Uh, when you listen to Anwar Ibrahim saying that the problem for democracy in the Muslim-majority world is really a problem for the Arab world. That's where the democratic deficit is right now, not in Indonesia or Malaysia or Turkey. It's in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, other Gulf countries, Jordan. Is that a fair point, do you think? I think it's absolutely a fair point and unfortunately has always been the case. Um, I don't, I think the the Arab Spring and, and as well as a lot of research has proven that it's not because the people are not interested in democracy, don't aspire for democracy, but that there's lots of other complex geopolitical factors that keep democracy away. Uh, So I agree with him. Actually, the majority of Muslims live under a democratic system or another. It's just the Arab world where um, that has not been the case. So here's a question about Muslim Americans uh, who are also under the spotlight these days for good reasons and bad. Um, Where do they fit into this in terms of attitudes towards democracy, political engagement, especially religious or practicing Muslim Americans, if I can call them that? What are their attitudes like? Muslim Americans, if I can generalize according to research, are a community that believes deeply in our democracy. One question I remember from a Gallup poll found that Muslims were the most likely faith community to have confidence in our electoral system. And and Dahlia, right now, you have Ilhan Omar, Congresswoman, first one of two, the first two Muslim American women to be elected to Congress. She's in the news being attacked. The president of the United States has said she should resign from Congress. To me, it's so frustrating that Muslim Americans are told to integrate, to be more democratic, to run for office. And then when they do, they're vilified, they're demonized, they're held to standards that other politicians are not held to. No, that's absolutely true. And uh, I I have been so disappointed in, in the way that our two congresswomen have been treated. 
they didn't go to Congress to fit in, right? They knew it was going to be tough. And, and that speaking about certain topics was, was going to be met with with some response. But even I was surprised by how difficult it's been for them. And how much of this discussion on Islam and democracy and integration is driven by Islamophobia, whether witting or unwitting? I think that some of the underlying assumptions that animate this discussion are Islamophobic, and it is oftentimes unwittingly. But I I really... I really challenge even the the framing of words like assimilation or integration. Yeah. It implies, you know, the mental model behind it is a host and an outside, you know, group coming in and trying to integrate or assimilate. And one-way traffic. A one-way traffic, exactly. And and it is always the the other being hosted by the real Americans, and it's on the other to accommodate and assimilate. And so I think that we simply have to reframe and rethink that entire model. You know, America is supposed to be a place where we're all equally American. There is no second-class citizenship. And that's the, the model we have to hold our country to. Dahlia, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you, Mehdi. That was Dahlia Mugahid from the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding and co-author of the book Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. And before her, of course, was Anwar Ibrahim. A lot of food for thought, I think you'd agree, from both of them. And a reminder that on thorny and contentious issues like this one, we all need to dig deeper and get past simplistic binaries, lazy media coverage and perhaps unconscious Islamophobia. That's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept and is distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Zach Young. Dina Sayed Ahmed is our production assistant. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Lital Molard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. 
Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.